For the March edition of the Post-Prison Education Program radio show, we are airing a presentation the organization made at last year's National Alliance on Mental Illness Annual Conference held October 2021. The title of the presentation is Thrown Away and features Emma Hogan, Ari Cohn, and Kevin Allen. And you can find the full presentation with visuals on the Post-Prison Education Program's YouTube page. Here is Emma Hogan. Emma, I currently work at the Post-Prison Education Program um, as an applicant and student services counselor. And I'm also pursuing my PhD in computer science education currently at University of California, San Diego, um, studying common educational gaps among currently incarcerated individuals that they would need to succeed in a um, bachelor's computer science program. So um, I've been involved for a few years now um, in criminal justice reform, mainly like concerned with educational access. Um, what brings me here today is to talk about the criminalization of mental illness, um, which is a system that not only prevents certain people with mental health issues from living the full lives that we are capable of, um, but it inflicts an enormous amount of punishment and suffering on them just for existing. Um, so about me, I was personally diagnosed with bipolar disorder in my late teens, um, after which I went through about a year of treatment, was stabilized on medication by a private psychiatrist that my family could afford, and I moved on with my life. Um, and that's certainly not the case for a lot of individuals. Um, so I just think it's a it's really important observation to make as we go into this, um, that there are hundreds of thousands of people with mental illness currently incarcerated um, in this country who are certainly no less capable and whose lives have no less potential. Um, and it's been quite a privilege for me to get to know and to learn um, an enormous amount from Kevin these past few months um, in preparing. And so he's going to introduce himself now. Good afternoon, I'm Kevin Allen. Um, I'm currently a substance use disorder professional. In other words, an alcohol and drug counselor for Lakeside Milam in Seattle, Washington. I'm a recent graduate with my associate's degree in counseling and arts and science. Um, as a native of Seattle, um, I've lived with bipolar anxiety and substance use disorder for over 40 years. Um, and then I've completed over 15 years of incarceration, mostly for drug offenses, such as selling $10 of crack. My mental illness has been a major contributor to my behavior, but it's only been considered the first time I was arrested or the second time I was arrested, and every time after that, it was never given any consideration. So I speak from experience um, with Department of Corrections and Department of Social and Health Services, how my mental health has not been considered as part of their treatment nor their rehabilitation. Um, we're gonna throw out to everyone a lot of data much of which comes from the Department of Corrections. And I want 
to emphasize that that's available. Uh, Emma can get that to anybody, and we would love to get it to everyone. Uh, we had some, what I would call damning data sets in the Department of Corrections we've had for quite a number of years. And, and uh, because of this presentation, I wanted to give them an opportunity to update that data. And so I, I forwarded the old data sets to Cheryl Strange about a week ago and gave her the opportunity to have her staff upset, uh, update the data. And, and uh, late yesterday, we did receive updated data and Emma will be showing these data sets uh, during the course of our, of our conversation with you. But I just invite you to please ask us anything you hear us talk about, please ask us for that information. Uh, I'll let Kevin give out his personal email. He, he can't use his Lakeside Milam because that's a, a place of employment. But Emma, Emma's email with PostPrison is emma.hogan at postprisonedu.org. And my email is ari.cone at postprisonedu.org. So anything you hear us talk about, if you'd like to, to know more about it or actually have the DSC data sets, or if we refer to a newspaper article, and there's several that we're going to offer to you, then please ask us for the links. And, and I think now would be a, a really good time to talk about one of those newspaper articles because I, I mean, Kevin's focus or Kevin's life story is the focus of our presentation. And it, um, um, and, and I, I think, and Kevin and Emma, please, uh, Correct me if I'm wrong or interrupt, but uh, but a couple of years ago, Kevin was on the front page of the Seattle Times. A beautiful picture of Kevin uh, on the front page above the fold, section A of the Seattle Times. And the, the story we'll tell you today is that, or try, or maybe the, what we'll try to persuade you to believe uh, is that government failures, but for government failures, Kevin could have been living 40, 50 years ago, the life that he is living today, college graduate, um, valued employee, clean and sober, stable, uh, much loved and admired by everybody, but government failures, and we'll describe those, um, basically ripped from Kevin's possible future five decades. So Kevin's first time in prison was before the Department of Corrections. It came into existence in 1982, and he was incarcerated in 1981 when the prisons were under DSHS, and um, and there's 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 actually I I firmly believe and and I and I know Kevin would, would will tell you and Emma will talk about it that where Kevin where Kevin is today 
is because his, his humanity was recognized at a point and opportunities were made available. And, and, uh, and, and, uh, and he could have been where he is today, as you'll see. In, if you want to just Google Seattle Times Kevin Allen, you'll see the article that I'm talking about. But where Kevin is today, he could have been in 1980, but for government failure. And it's those government failures and problems along the way that we'll talk about. So, um, Emma, Kevin. Yeah, I meant to. I meant to ask to go to the next slide for that. That was um, yeah, a great yeah. introduction. Thank you. All right. Um, but yes. Yeah, so. Um, our presentation is going to be about how mental illness um, and presented as a comorbidity with other factors that make someone increasingly likely to be incarcerated. And um, really what uh, Kevin's story, um, the barriers um, in place on a societal level and a government level, um, every step of the way really uh, bring these facts to life. And um, it's a pretty powerful story. and. And so we're looking forward to presenting this information to you with that, with that intertwined every step of the way, um, the lived experience of it. Um, with that, can we go to the next slide? And I'm gonna give, um, so it looks like, um, I guess every time someone like enters the room, it covers up the top of the screen. But what I'm gonna be sharing a little bit about is a brief introduction to how different levels of mental health are categorized by the Department of Corrections. So um, these are just some short definitions. Uh, S codes from values one to five represent increasing levels of mental illness. Um, and these are how, um, how incarcerated individuals are broken down um, in data by the DOC. So as you can see, the S code one is no serious symptoms. S code two is mild to moderate symptoms of a less severe disorder or um, complete or near remission of a major one. And once you get to S3, um, there is a major um, mental disorder. So that's schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, um, and the like, and so on the next slide, it continues, but. Uh, I, think, I think it might be good uh, uh, to just interject here a little anecdote about how the post-prison education program got as deeply involved in the issue of the criminalization of mental illness as, as we have been since 2010. And I think, especially because I, I noticed that Cheryl Strange did a presentation during the lunch break and, and this anecdote involves Cheryl. So, uh, but it might, hopefully it'll be informative. So um, as some of you may know, there's five prisons in Monroe at the Monroe Correctional Complex and one, the one that houses people who are, suffer serious mental illness is called the Special Offender Unit, SOU. And in 2010, I, I got a call from a counselor in that prison. 
And she was asking me to get involved, not me, but asking me to have our nonprofit get involved in the life of a, 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 man, a young man, Jeremy Polston, who's in prison still today. And basically her argument to me was if, if the post-prison education program didn't get involved with him, he had no chance. And that's literally what she said. And, 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 this, and she, she told me that his diagnosis was schizoaffective disorder. And, and so we agreed to get involved to the extent that he would and his family would allow and the Department of Corrections would allow. And, and DOC ended up being a huge obstacle on that. Uh, but uh, uh, after, that, after that call from the prison in, in regard to Mr. Polston, we kept getting those calls and it got to be frustrating. At that time, about 8,000 people were releasing from Washington's prisons every year, about 700 a month. And, and it, it, it just seemed to me a staggering, we were getting a staggering number of calls about people releasing into nothingness and hopelessness uh, with serious mental illness diagnoses. And so um, I was up at, uh, at well, I actually, Cheryl Strange used to be deputy secretary of the Department of Corrections and, and was back at this, in this time frame, 2010. And, and I, kn I know Cheryl fairly well. And, 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 um, and I sent a, uh, I said, I know her well enough to be very candid at communication. So I sent an email to her and I basically, I want to be careful since we're sort of on the nationals wide open stage here with profanity. Uh, but I, I sent a Cheryl and I just, an email and I said, Cheryl, just how, how effing many are there? How many of the 700 people that DOC releases every month, how many are suffering mental illness? And Cheryl guessed that it would be a hundred. And a couple months later, and, and, and Emma's going to show you staggering numbers, and, and Kevin's going to talk about the consequence of, of being one of those numbers. And um, so, a couple months later, I was at a had been asked to speak at a graduation inside one of the prisons that had been run, the Washington State Reformatory. And Scott Frakes was a superintendent then, and now he's in charge of. DSC in Nebraska, and I consider him to be a personal friend and a wonderful person. And I asked Scott, I said, Scott, Cheryl answered this question by saying 100 of the 700 people releasing suffer mental illness. And, and Scott just very, who, and Scott was over the special offender unit at that time. So he, he just said, he said, Cheryl's wrong. It has to be at least, I think he said 146 of the 700. And so that's a fairly high percentage. And so at that point, we started going to the Department of Corrections for data, just trying to find out the real numbers. And this is what we found out. So we ended up with a data set, which we can make available to you, and, and, and Matt and Sage and Nami have it. We ended up with a data set. If you want to go to the next slide, please. It's on the next slide. Well, we'll finish this, and then you can... And yeah, so we ended up with a data set that showed that at least 34% of Washington's prisoners suffered serious mental illness. And uh, so, which is astounding. If you, wanna, if you want proof of the criminalization of mental illness, that was it. Almost half, a lot of people who are 
deeply involved in the prison system in Washington, believe that half of the people in Washington's prisons suffer mental illness. But the data set we got in 2010 showed that at least, irrefutably, at least 34% of Washington's prisoners were S code two, three, four, or five. And we can, and I'll give you a simple definition and, uh, of, of that. And then I'll, we'll move on quickly. Uh, and, uh, 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 and, uh, so the day that we sent that to Cheryl a couple of weeks ago and, and told her that we were doing this presentation and invited her to have her staff update those numbers because some of the data sets were terrible. Some of the, I mean, unjustifiable. I mean, uh, one of the data sets shows that I call it the Department of Corrections failure rate, which Cheryl was responsible for at this point because people who run reentry for her report to her. But um, there's one slot on readmission which shows that more than half the people who were released from Washington's prisons as of August of 2012 were returning with new felony, one or more new felony convictions. And so, um, but the, the, the data set on S codes, and, and this is an S, the S, this is the updated one that, that we have up now that Emma's gonna talk about. It showed that 30, it showed that 34% uh, of Washington's prisoners suffer serious mental illness. It showed that in a 15 year period, and Kevin will talk about this in, in detail, I hope. I know he will, we've been practicing this for weeks and, and, and it's, it's important. Uh, but at least uh, in a 15 year period, at least 22,000 men and women went through male and female intake in the Washington State Department of Corrections and they weren't, uh, they weren't classified. So they weren't properly evaluated as to whether they suffered mental illness or not. And, and very likely could have ended up in a prison with schizophrenia where there was no staff there to meet their needs, which might be prescribing uh, drugs or counseling. But 22,000 men and women went through male and female intake in a 15 year period, according to DOC data, and, and, and were unclassified. And that's a horrifying number. So um, then it showed, that same data set showed, as I just mentioned, 34% or more of Washington's prisoners were classified as code two, three, four, five. And, you, and you'll see DOC's definitions and they're available. Uh, we'd love to get them out to you. But basically you can take S code zero, which you're looking at now, that's, that's unclassified. So uh, S code one in, in lay terms would be um, healthy or not, not suffering serious mental illness. And then S code two, three, four, and five, the higher that number, the more serious the, the, the diagnosis and the, and the more required by Department of Corrections staff to, to meet your needs so that you, you don't maybe end up with a death from overdose or suicide. But by the way, Cheryl won't have talked to you about this, but there have been a lot of frequent uh, attempts at suicide in Washington's prisons. Uh, it's an issue we've taken to CNN, New York City, and um, and some, it's horrible to call a suicide attempt successful. That's a terrible misuse of words. But, but uh, anyway, there, recently there have been, there has been within the last two weeks, uh, somebody attempted suicide and in fact died. And there's been some uh, 
attempts that didn't result in death. But um, so S code two, three, four, five, the higher the number, uh, the, the more severe your diagnosis. Uh, S code zero, unclassified. One is no, no, no diagnosis of serious mental illness. And then two, three, four, five, the higher the number, the more serious your, your, your circumstances are. So we, uh, um, we can go to the next slide now, if that's okay. And, and I, think the, I think a great person to talk about, I mean, the best two, I mean, Ke Kevin, misdiagnosis, Kevin and Emma, if you two could please uh, address that uh, mis and, and misdiagnosis are, are, have huge consequence, life and death consequence. Uh, yeah, so um, when I was talking to Kevin and preparing for this, uh, we decided to kind of um, highlight all of the places where he, uh, in his life, and we know this is not the case for just Kevin, but have run into um, systematic and uh, barriers. Um, and so we labeled this as missed diagnosis because um, this is one of the first places that this particular system fails is, is in missing an opportunity to connect people suffering with mental illness including substance abuse disorders with the life-saving treatment that they need. Um, and later in the presentation, we're gonna talk about the specific issues regarding um, the screening process upon entering correctional facilities. Um, but yeah, so if you wanna go to the next slide and then I'm gonna have Kevin share his personal experience. Um, this is some statistics just to give it context from a Vera Institute of Justice report. So these are national statistics. Um, and I, I want to just interject one thing here since we're going to really move into Kevin's life uh, to the greatest extent uh, you, you all allow us. But, you know, the Department of Corrections was given no less information about Kevin than post-prison education program was given in 2005 when Kevin came out of prison um, and we met him at POCAN. He was very candid and courageously honest about his diagnosis and addiction. And, 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 and DOC knew, had those, same, so had those same facts in front of them that we had in 2005 and did nothing with it. Same for King County. Same for city of Seattle. So Kevin lives in Seattle uh, and, uh, and has resided all the years that I've known him in King County. And, um, but so King County, I think this is systemic failure and it's at every level, city, county, state, from the governor on down. Uh, but, but Department of Corrections had all the information about Kevin from early on, from decades ago, that we got, that we were given in 2005, and in government, including Cheryl Strange's DOC, could have done for Kevin what post-prison education program did, 
and and I would argue should have done, and 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 their failure to do that really resulted in the loss of decades of this gentleman's life and decades of loss of opportunity. So Kevin, please jump in and, and throw some at me, tell me to shut up and I'll be quiet, believe it or not. I would never go that far. But anyhow, <clears throat> yeah, my experience um, started out uh, with an arrest for uh, a robbery with a toy cap pistol where I uh, evidently was thinking that I had a real gun and didn't and uh, ended up with a sentence of 20 years. I went to the Elton the intake prison, evaluated and uh, came out as a normal person and no one ever questioned why I did this or the the, why it was uncharacteristic or anything. And uh, the end result is I was given uh, treatment that was special because it was my first offense, but there was no consideration for what was going on mentally with me. It was 2000, it was uh, 1980 when I went to prison. And it was 94 before it was ever diagnosed. And it wasn't through the prison system. It was a private psychiatrist. And uh, as you look back on it, um, much of my behavior can be explained through being bipolar. Uh, but no consideration was ever given in, in those first uh, 15 years um, where I served underneath the parole board and was violated several times for drug use. I wonder, is, is this a good point, Emma, Kevin, for us to talk about what, what when a prisoner walks into the prison of Sheldon or uh, the prison at Purdy, uh, and male or female intake, and where this classification is supposed to happen and, and, um, and, and what doesn't happen and, and how unqualified the people are that DOC employs to be making these determinations. Sure, Ari. There's um, there's a inventory called the MMPI, pretty pretty famous throughout uh, mental health and psychology. Um, it's an inventory that takes a look at various variables, including mental health, um, stability, um, skills, and uh, deficits, and um, everybody's taken this, this test, which was invented in the 50s, uh, as you come through the R units or the reception units in, in uh, Shelton in Washington. But the standard deviation that's set to show that you have a mental illness issue is set so high that a person with subtle um, improprieties are not even considered or recognized. They're treated like everyone else in the population. And uh, I've never scored on any of these tests where, and I've been through them over five times, and I've never been set out of sight as having a mental illness, um, other than the statements that came with me in my pre-sentence report that was issued by my attorney. So DLC would miss all that. And if it was not for the fact that I required medication that was offered to me by my psychiatrist, 
it would have been months before a psychiatrist would have seen me in the system um, to prescribe the medication. And you could have, if you weren't properly diagnosed, you could easily very well have ended up in a prison where the DOC had no employees that were trained, licensed, educated sufficiently to even address your diagnosis or even oh. to prescribe medicine. You end, it, it, the, key, the key to the proper classification and diagnosis is to, is to have a prisoner placed at a place uh, where, where, where they can uh, have their needs met. Can you yeah. go, um, sorry, can you go to two slides ahead actually so that the slide matches what we're talking about? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so what I did find out, well, you just kind of learn through word of mouth is that you better keep your mouth shut if you got anything other than a perfect uh, disposition. If you have drug issues, you have mental illness issues, if you have anger issues, anything of the sort, it will set you into a, to a heavier security standard regardless of what your crime was. If you have the, if you have the case where through classification, you're given the opportunity to go to very low minimum security. If they find out you have mental illness, you will no longer be qualified there. You will be sent to um, a major institution where security is higher. Um, if you have mental illness, there are certain programs that you're not allowed to be a part of where other people can work in and make a reasonable wage, you're um, not qualified to do because they don't have situations for a person with mental illness. If like in my case, you're dealing with the parole board, um, you have to qualify mentally. Your mental illness has to be within their standards before they'll release you. Otherwise they just continue to recycle you through the program and keep turning you down for parole. So, um, for most of my period of time underneath the parole board with DSHS, um, I didn't know that I had this mental illness. And furthermore, if I knew, I don't know that I would be honest to tell them because the way I would be treated would be discriminatory. Uh, Kevin and Emma, I want to. There's a question in chat. I want to read for everybody, and it's from Jerry Clark Pay to everyone. So. The question is, do you have an explanation? Is it ignorance about what mental illness is? Are screenings designed to avoid spending resources? Or what is the barrier to a better screening tool and metric? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just tell you what my first reaction, uh, it, that question is, and thank you for putting that forward. I think it's an important issue. Uh, it's uh, the, the people, uh, you know, I've listened to Rachel Severs speak at Disability Rights Washington speak eloquently about those hallways where she and I both have been in, in male and female prisons. And they're, they're, they're dehumanizing in the first place. Mm -hmm. So basically you're on a hallway in your underwear uh, and you've got people of both genders uh, up and down the hallway as you sit there close to naked, waiting to be seen by somebody who actually is not qualified 
to make this determination. Um, and and, and, and what, if, there, if DOC is not hiring qualified people to make that determination, then that's a budgetary concern. I mean, uh, uh, we just watched Cheryl and her executive leadership team ask the legislature for so little money for programs and education that if the legislature gave them what they asked for, they wouldn't have enough money to do the job that they should be doing, that they're actually required by law to do. And I think, and then I'm going to shut up and, and ask Emma and Kevin to jump, jump in. I think, uh, going back to that, your question, uh, I think it's, a, uh, it's an issue of DOC. At no time in, 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 the, in the long time I've been involved with them, caring enough to hire people who are educated enough. And so, so it is a budgetary issue. So in the end result is on those horrible hallways where these determinations are made, uh, you have people in these small glass cubicles, basically, that are making decisions that aren't qual they aren't qualified to make. And so that's what I think. But Kevin, you've walked those hallways. So I'm, we have Department of Corrections data uploaded into our Salesforce with the permission of the Administrative Office of the course. And so I, I can actually go in our Salesforce and I can see all of Kevin's incarcerations. I can see his S code during any incarceration. I can see how they rated him, whether violent, nonviolent, or whatever. But I can see when an imprisonment in Sokanama uh, began and when it ended, and how fast he was sedated afterwards. And so I know Kevin has walked these hallways that we're talking about at least six times during his life. And, and so, Kevin, you want to? Talk about that, please, sir. Well, admissions into the prison, you come off the bus, shackled hands and feet. Uh, you come into an area, you're, um, you have to take off your clothes and, to your, and you're given a towel to put around you. Um, and you wait for your number to be called so you can be, have a picture taken of you and your fingerprints. Um, then you are uh, asked questions about your mental health. At, uh, by a nurse, she asked, "What medicine I mean, did you point, take?" I'd like to see Cheryl Strange walk down one of those hallways, and Sean Murphy, and Governor Jay Inslee also, and not just once. But it's well, what it comes down to is, you yeah. know, are you treat are you treating a, a prisoner as a human, or are you treating them as a number? And it's pretty clear that the latter is the case. And, um, and, and going back to the pave question, it's not really. It's not ignorance, it's just, um, it's, I don't I know, word, words don't suffice. Ari, can you talk about, um, because one, um, with, this, with this question, and thank you, that's a great question. Um, I totally agree with what Ari and Kevin had said, and I think that really is a good lead into the last um, bullet point that I have on this slide. Um, and this is something that's just um, really one of the most um, inhumane features of, oh. of this whole thing, which is which is punishing behavior associated with mental illness um, as yeah. as bad behavior, as breaking rules, and often with time in solitary confinement, which is about the worst way that you could possibly 
um, respond to someone having a mental health crisis. Um, so it's, it's ignorance and it's, and it's a punitive um, culture and a punitive system um, punishing people um, for, mental, uh, for mental illness who um, have ended up in prison, which, is not, which was not meant to accommodate people with mental health. But um, Ari and Kevin, if you want to speak to that last point, I know that you had a lot to say about that. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the reasons why a lot of people don't speak about their mental illnesses, if it isn't apparent, is because they will be locked up as though they were a danger to society. When you're able to walk around inside a prison and go to the basketball court, exercise, eat with everybody else at tables and stuff, it, it's actually considered a privilege. They take that privilege away the minute you're considered mentally ill and you're placed in a higher security, oftentimes in a solitary cell by yourself where you have one hour a day to get any exercise except with the, ex with the exception of seeing somebody give you some pills three times a day, no counseling. And your psychiatrist, unless you are totally psychotic, probably won't see you but once every three to six months. Kevin, you and I went up to Monroe together about two years ago at the request of Disability Rights Washington to meet with Eldorado Cadillac Brown, who suffers serious mental illness. I'm, and on this slide, um, where, we're where we talk about only the acutely ill receive treatment, I've, I'd like to make the point that not everyone who's acutely ill receives treatment and kind of what the consequence of that is. And Emma can give, uh, give everyone a link to a Spokane article about Disability Rights Washington suing the Department of Corrections on behalf of Cadillac, Cadillac Adelaide Brown, and that's his real name. Um, and, and, so, uh, and so Kevin and I sat in, in, in intensive management unit with a, a seriously ill man the DOC knew had had really serious diagnosis and and, and and never had the answer for that. And um, uh, you know, he so he didn't receive despite acute ill treatment uh, and diagnosis, he didn't receive anything, anything meaningful from the Department of Corrections. And, and when he released, his releases were not successful. And generally in the community, his probation officer, CCO, out of the DOC's West Seattle office, would treat his, when he, I'm not gonna call it acting out, uh, but when, when he acted the way society should expect him to act based on his diagnosis, then his CCO would treat that as though he was behaving badly and by intention and then, and, and, and then infract him and violate him back to the prison. So, so what he got time and time again, uh, Mr. Brown got time and time again was inadequate uh, treatment in prison and then released to staff that weren't trained to to, to deal with somebody with his diagnosis. And so they kept infracting him and, and violating him back to the prison. And so just where it says, 
I mean, actually, where, where we got in the slide, only the acutely ill receive treatment. That's absolutely true, as Kevin just said. But it's but please don't read that as always being true. Kevin, Emma, please. Right. Um, I do want to. So thank you so much, everyone. And please continue to put questions in the chat because that's really um, how we'd love to engage with you guys in this presentation is by question and answer. And I do want to uh, lift up Marsha Williams uh, asked a question, what solutions do you recommend? And I do, I want to get to that. And um, I'm looking at the clock and there is one more topic that I think is absolutely critical just um, to this presentation before we get to that. Um, and so can we skip ahead um, to uh, two slides. So to access to treatment during mental health crisis. Oh, one back, sorry. Thank you. Um, so uh, one of the very important points that I just wanna make sure that everyone um, Here's the story is, is in this presentation is that mental health treatment in times of crisis is, is um, heavily impacted by one's race and economic status. It's um, just really crucial to understand that this is not just in jails and prisons, which is a flawed system um, and definitely unfair to these individuals, but it's not just in jails and prisons. It's, it's really um, comes up even in healthcare systems where, where we'd like to think that that's not present. Um, and for this section, Ari and Kevin have, have a very powerful story um, that uh, I would like them to get the chance to share before we talk about solutions. Um, do you guys want to talk about um, the UW Medical Center? Yeah. Um, you know, the time came from being a, a cocaine addict uh, for living on the streets and days and days without eating and drinking. Um, where I became oblivious to reality um, and suicidal. And, uh, you know, Ari has said, we've known each other now for almost 15 years, and he's always been there for me at the, at the picking up of a phone. And uh, he's always made every effort he could to try and help me through my tougher times. And this was one of those times where I was suicidal and I was withdrawing off of cocaine and I made a call. Um, my feet had swollen up to the point I could barely walk on them. And he and the assistant came, picked me up and took me to the hospital um, to get uh, services for being suicidal for SA and RSI. And the hospital basically said they were going to do everything they could for me. And um, while, while Rari was there, and what they ended up doing was sending me out to basically a, a mission-type situation where I didn't qualify to be in there when I got there. And I was turned out of that mission place late that night in the two or three in the morning, and Ari had to come get me again. Well, can, can, can I, I'm going to give them a little more information, and then if you would wrap it, wrap this horrible story up, which has very much to do with skin color and racism, understatement of the year. Uh, so, uh, and it was a terrible time 
where Kevin, he was, he, our office was downtown in the central building for 14 years. And, and I and we got a call from Kevin. He was up on third Avenue in the Belltown area and he couldn't get to our office. And, and, and so I went, I think I took Metro and I went up to where Kevin was and, 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 walked him on to Metro and, and honestly I thought Kevin had gout that day his feet were so swollen and, and and you know if you're living on the streets you're not clean and you haven't had a shower and your clothes are dirty and then Kevin's feet were horrible they were, it was scary and but we got him back to, and, and he was talking to me about being suicidal and I believed him and it scared me. Um, we, we got Kevin back to the office and I, a woman that worked for, for us at the time, I had her get a zip car. And so at that point, you've got two white people, a young, blonde, white female, you know, uh, educated Wesleyan Collins, so very wealthy family and white, blonde, white, 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 and, and, and me, white guy. And we get the zip car and we go out to UW Medical Center, which made sense because at the time, Kevin Allen was a student at the University of Washington, where to this day, he has a 3.2 GPA, which I know he's proud of. And, uh, uh, and uh, but it made sense to take Kevin to UW Medical Center because he was a full-time student at the time and, and as such should have had insurance and I'm sure did. And Mary, my coworker at the time, and I had to just be pushy to get the hospital to admit him. And frankly, we've learned over the last 16 years in a, in a situation, if we're trying to get somebody into an emergency room or a psych ward, we've learned to use the word suicide. It's a, it's a, it's a word they that risk of law, they, if they want to ignore that, there could be legal consequences. And so Mary and I repeatedly were telling the truth, which was Kevin was suicidal. And we finally, it took hours, got him in, into the hospital. And I felt like we had accomplished the uh, uh, impossible when we left. And I was pleased. I felt like I, driving away. I know Mary felt the same, but w that, that, that Kevin was going to be okay. And, and, and uh, you know, after us, the white people are gone. The University of Washington Medical Center threw Kevin out on the streets. The student, UW, full-time UW student, they threw him out. That's literally what they did. Somebody who, who they had been informed was considering suicide. He was clearly loaded. And I think all they did, I think all they did was they saw a black man who was dirty and, and, and they didn't care. And they threw him out. And I got home later and I was, Shocked to an extent, I, I can never tell, but, and, and, and Kevin, please talk about what it felt like to be thrown out of that hospital that night at the University of Washington Medical Center. But I got home and I got it. Not, not many people have my personal cell phone number and, or uh, Kevin has it and always will have it. And I was shocked. I got a, a phone call from Kevin and he'd been thrown out. 
and he was at a, a church on the north end of Green Lake, completely not provided for. So, Kevin, can you? I mean, if you if you if you want to talk about socioeconomic status and racism, uh, and I don't even know what other words to put on this, but Kevin, yeah, you know that. It, it, it doesn't become terribly obvious until you've lived these 30 years in King County trying to get mental health treatment. But he talks about this example where the hospital tried to place me in an overnight spot and I didn't qualify and ended up outside. Well, the next time they came to get me and I had good student insurance and, and uh, we had proved that, you know, what they did before didn't work. I ended up at Fairfax, one of the best hospitals in Washington. But it's never happened again. And I have been in a hospital several times psychotic. I've been in, I've been in a hospital where I was locked up for a day and then released straight back to the street with nothing in my pocket and a few bites to eat. So it's not like anybody's looking for remedies. You know, if anything, we just want to protect ourselves against lawsuits. And I just want to make absolutely clear this, what year did this happen? This was uh, 2013. And, uh, you know, it, it only in the last three years since I've been sober and I, and I'm, I, I'm stuck with community mental health, but um, it was a psychiatrist many years ago that established the meds they thought I should take. And those are the ones that I've always taken when I'm in prison. And all they've ever done is just give me these meds. And regardless of the side effects, I blow up and get fat and overweight. Um, I'd be sedated, would get depressed and wouldn't go to eat. No one would adjust my medications. So now I do have somebody who happens to really care. Um, I'm not saying that community health is a, is a bad place, but I'm saying that's few and far between you find those that truly care in that mess and um, they don't have a lot of money to work with so I kind of understand it but I, I would I would qualify as one of their successes and it only came because I had support from other people other than just DSHS medical coupons I mean it took some people that you know some time to sit in their office and talk to it took some people who have loved me for years and have really just went through it with me, um, really just standing by my side. Sometimes having them come with me had more impact than what I could say in myself. And I, I consider myself pretty well, I'm pretty, I can speak for myself pretty clearly, but I'm, society just simply wouldn't believe me because I have this, this diagnosis of, of co-occurring uh, disorder, uh, which is mental and substance use. Um, you know, so often when I was on the streets using, um, I met people who had all kinds of psychotic outbreaks, some of it because of the drugs, some of it because of just their mental health. But what I've come to learn as a drug and alcohol counselor is you have to treat them both simultaneously because you don't know which one is the cause of it. And um, I've only received that kind of treatment a couple of times in my life. 
And um, in most cases, they weren't thorough. They were just doing what was required because DSHS was paying their, their bill. And uh, I'm very fortunate now to have a couple people who truly are on, on board with me, who really care about me in the mental health system um, uh, in Seattle. Evan, should we ask Sage to put up the next slide? I, I'm worried about time. I know. Um, and I, I, and I, you do that, I want to read this last chat from Terry Clark. He uh, actually got to the last slide of the, uh, yeah. so that would be next. I, let me read Jerry's last chat. So this lazy generic prescribing is a huge aspect of poor care. It worsens outcomes for people who cycle through incarceration, homelessness, etc. All I can say to that is amen and thank you for the chat. And then. Um, um, I saw something from Carolyn. Um, I'd like to answer if I could. Um, it was directed at me. I, Carolyn, I hope you won't mind me sharing this with um, people, but it's what would you what would have helped you while you were in prison? What can NAMI do for prisoners who are suffering from mental illness in prisons and not receiving support? Well, we can take away the whole psychiatric mental health treatment abilities of DOC and provide independent treatment. One that is not uh, bound by criminologists, but actual people who care about people's health. NAMI is such a place that would be objective and competent. And uh, that would be the thing to do is to go down to Olympia and, and intercede and take away their rights to give out mental health because they're dangerous. And the people in NAMI care about people and they're not driven by, by the income matters. They're driven by having people be healthy and be given their rights and dignity. And that just simply doesn't exist within the Department of Corrections. Kevin, I want you to jump in and talk more, please. About Hi, everyone. I'm actually really sorry. I do want to interject and just say there's one minute yeah. left. Okay. Well, thanks, I'm a, thanks, everybody, for your attention. Let's, let's, so what I'd like to hear is Kevin and Emma close this out. But Kevin, Kevin told Emma and I um, that what finally made the difference in his life was was self he he gained self esteem and so that's the solution uh, to to what Nami can do and so on and uh, I've lost everybody's picture here but uh, I think it would be really good uh, to Kevin if you could please talk about. What was the solution for you? So, so drug the solution use was this: and, and you graduated college, and and you and you became a stellar. You, well, you always were this great, wonderful human being. <laughs> no, well, I'll be as brief as I can, and this is what I do as a counselor today. I try to redirect a person's focus, a focus from their substance, to a focus on success. Try to figure out where you want to go. And post-prison education coming out of prison will put you there. Um, if you have a focus, you will not have you will not have your mind on your drugs anymore. And I was fortunate to be able to get into Bellevue College and get wraparound services 
and somebody say, look, this guy's got sense. Let's give him a try. Tutors, um, finances, and it all worked out. But I couldn't have done it alone. And, and just like DLC will put you on the streets and say, get yourself a place to stay and find yourself a medial job where you'll get nowhere. Who cares about that? Give people the opportunity to live a good quality life and they'll, they'll pursue it. You were just listening to a presentation by Ari Cohn, Emma Hogan, and Kevin Allen of the Post-Prison Education Program titled Thrown Away. That was given last October at the National Alliance on Mental Illness Annual Conference. You can find the full presentation with visuals at the Post-Prison Education Program's YouTube page and more information about the organization at their website postprisonedu.org.